Well, the way the Buddha said it, the way the Buddha said it was, everything is dear to us causes pain. And when I first heard that, I thought, no, Abby, Abigail is like groaning, what a thing to say. It doesn't sound like a very cheerful thing for the Buddha to say. But actually, and when I first heard it, I actually thought that's not true. Uh, I thought to myself, everything that's dear to me is, of course, is a source of pleasure in my life. You know, I've got lots of things that are dear to me, and I wouldn't have them otherwise. As a matter of fact, uh, I think most of us are hopeful that we'll have things that are dear to us. We go around looking to to fall in love and with 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 places and with things, and most of all, with people, don't we? Isn't that what we want most of all? I mean, when. Uh, uh, one of my children said to me at some time recently, as a time of some difficult, some particular difficulty for one of her children was going through some hard patch, and she said to me, "You know," she said, "When you get pregnant, and uh, then when you, your child is born, everybody makes such a big fuss and congratulations and wonderful." And said, "Nobody tells you you have just now mortgaged your heart for the rest of your life." <laughs> And that's it. You know, that, that there's another part of it. From now on, your life is different from before because your happiness depends on the well-being and happiness of this other person. And uh, if, uh, in my own experience, if uh, since I am fortunate and I have a lot of other people that I care about, and then they all multiply somehow. They get other people that they care about, and then they make other people that they care about, or they take on other people that they care about. So the sphere of people who you care about gets bigger and bigger. And in a sense, I begin to understand about uh, the awareness that the possibility of being bereft is multiplied by the numbers of people to, who are dear to me. Um, and I think the truth is that we all still would choose the possibility of being bereft than the possibility of not being connected. And that somehow or another we have to negotiate our way through this life, um, hoping to be connected and dealing with being bereft in between. I thought about this last week particularly, which is one of the reasons that I had it in mind. I had a couple of reasons in mind today. All of these um, classes in these few weeks, I, I've thought about and introduced as being part of um, uh, the different ways that I've been looking at the question of how do we keep our hearts afloat? I can't think of a better word. Alive, engaged, interested, not uh, not so depressed, not so sad, not so um, undone by the travails of our own life and by the perils of the world. It's very hard to read the newspaper every day and not become tremendously depressed or cynical. Um, I heard some uh, uh, um, poll of college students the other day. It was, it was very sad to hear that X percent of college students, more than not, said that they didn't feel that what they did in the world would make any difference at all. And I feel terrible about that. First of all, I feel terrible that this whole generation of young people have grown up hopeless, you know. I, you know, I remember thinking or being taught in civics classes when I was growing up and certainly learning from my parents that what I did would make a difference and that it was important to do things in the world. And um, uh, I remember being so happy to be able to vote. I was so excited for the, uh, I voted for the first time in 1960, because you had to be 21. And I became 21 in 1957, so I missed the 56 election. But I was so excited about voting for John Kennedy, and it was a big deal to, to vote. And it was uh, in the days before the instant tabulations of votes, and I lived on the East Coast. And we stayed up all night to hear the election results in the morning, and it was the most exciting thing. And I felt like my vote made a difference. And I have never not voted in an election. And now I read the, uh, the statistics of how many people don't vote and how many young people don't vote. And the biggest non-voting block of people is women between the ages of 18 and 25. I'm horrified about that. I feel I'm perf personally 
Like I have to go out and stand on street corners and register voters. You know, I'm actually I'm doing all kinds of things, but that may be the next thing I do. But but uh, the sense of it, aside from the fact that I want people to vote in this election, is I think the sense of feeling hopeless must be a terrible feeling. You know, that because just when we started to meditate this morning, and I said I felt there was a direct connection between the practice of resting the mind so that it can relax a little bit from the, um, uh, I think, challenged state that it often lives in mind, at least, and from an unchallenged place, from a place of resting mind, begin to reflect and say, well, I could do this, or I could do that, or I could do the other. It's like when you're faced with a problem and you say, well, I don't know, but let me just relax a minute and think it over and see what I could do. And there are possibilities that become available to you. So I'm thinking about what keeps the mind hopeful, what keeps it alive, what keeps it afloat. So I decided I wanted to talk about that for a series of these weeks. And uh, then just after last week's class, actually on last, last Thursday, uh, I live up in Sonoma County. Many people here live up in Sonoma County. I noticed Petaluma, Sebastopol. So that uh, those people know for sure that um, a child died in the uh, water park in Windsor the, last week on an end of school outing day. A sixth grade child died, and um, you know it's not a it's not an unheard of event. It's not a frequent event, but at the end of school, I heard this on. Um, on a morning that my uh, one of my grandsons is in the sixth grade was going on a sixth grade end of year day out that involves swimming in a lake, and um, and I talked to somebody on the phone who was involved in uh, who teaches in Sonoma County, so I was involved in working with children in grief counseling because there were two hundred and fifty other children there when this happened, and uh, it's a aside from the great personal tragedy to the family involved, it's a shock to everybody, even to people who don't know the child, but to the people who do. Because all of a sudden you get to see right up close that this happens to everybody all the time. just rarely happens next to you, but uh, happens next to you. You really think, <gasps> And one of the things that I heard from this friend of mine who works as a in a counseling capacity up there, said one 12-year-old child said, as a, in a group that was discussing it, said, well, you know, I guess what's true is that could be any of us, any time. And the only time that you're actually sure of is right now. And I thought to myself, wow, who knows that when they're 12? You know, who knows that really when they're 12? Who has that in the front of their mind as a... a uh, as a touchstone of organizing their thinking. I, I mean, I'm terribly sorry, terribly sad that that whole thing happened and the pain of everybody involved. But in a moment, in that moment that I heard that, I had a certain uplift in my heart that, um, okay, these terrible things happen, but wisdom is possible. Here in the, in the, in the, in the mind of a 12-year-old is wisdom. If wisdom were possible in everybody's mind about this is the only moment that we have, how do we want to spend it? Um, you remember that line? I often quote it, many people often quote it, it's the last line of a Mary Oliver poem. Uh, what will you do with this one wild and precious, precious life? I'm thinking to myself, what will you do with this one wild and precious moment? Mm. One wild and precious day, you know. A, here's a poem by uh, Billy Collins, who I read frequently um, here. was just the poet laureate of this country. This is called Picnic Lightning. Um, it, 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 actually, the, the, there's a line from uh, Lolita that starts the poem and says... Uh, uh, it's like a news, uh, like a journal entry. It says, My very photogenic mother died in a freak accident, picnic lightning, when I was three. Anyway, here's the poem. It's possible to be struck by a meteor or a single-engine plane while reading in a chair at home, safe strapped from rooftops and flatten the odd pedestrian, mostly within the panels of the comics, but still 
we know it is possible, as well as the flash of summer lightning, the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know the message can be delivered from within, the heart. No valentine decides to quit after lunch. Power shut off like a switch. Or a dark, tiny ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers, the brain a monastery defenseless on the shore. This is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow and when I fill the long flower beds, then press into rows the limp roots of red impatience, the instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak. Then the soil is full of marvels, bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco, red-brown pine needles, a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then the wheelbarrow is a wilder blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of steel edge against a round stone, the small plants singing with lifted faces, and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. Mm. Mm. The instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak. And that, I think to yourself, well, you don't know. You know, someone's walking out on the shore out at, at Bolinas here and a big wave. I think about it and I think it's important for me to think about it two things become very clear to me. One is the question of whether I have a choice, really, about what I will do with this wild and precious moment. Suppose I'm angry at somebody. Suppose that my feelings have been hurt. What will it take for me in that moment that my feelings are hurt and I really feel bad, I really feel angry, not to strike back in that moment? But... How is it possible for me to know so thoroughly that I don't get to do that moment at all, over again, ever? Can I save that moment from a moment of war and make it into a moment of peace? Should I save that moment from a moment of war and make it a moment of peace? Can I change it into a moment of compassion? Should I have a war and then make a peace? What's a good thing to do? I'm concerned about maybe on a personal level, it's good to have a, a war, get it over with, and make a peace. The reason I'm concerned is we have so many wars in the world, and I'm thinking about what would it take to end those. I want to read you some poetry about the war in Iraq, but not for a while yet. We have some more things to talk about. Ah. Uh, I left my book out in the car. Let me think about if we can get it or if I should just remember it. It's a book by... Uh-huh. I'll get it. Let me think, Erin. Maybe, maybe I'll do that, the book, and we'll each talk about it instead. Talk about it. Everybody's got a story about this. The book I had out in the car is a book by Terry Tempest Williams called... Um, Refuge. Maybe it had a longer t- title than that, but the first line of the title, the first word of the temp- of the title is refuge. And it's a story about she's a naturalist, and she was uh, she's been, she in the book is watching uh, the degradation of the Great Salt Lake, um, and at the same time she's watching her mother die of cancer over a period of time. And she's talking about this great on a global scale death that she's watching, and also the death of her mother, and both natural events occurring, and talking about all of her family and how they behave in it, and um, how everybody was really uh, present for it, talked about it, made plans for it, uh, that what uh, what seemed to be the most um, saving part of the pain of getting used to the of being in the process of losing and then losing one's mother was um, mitigated by everybody talking about it all the time, by it absolutely all being out as part of the, the, the conversation between people. 
and the honesty that happened and the sadness that, that happened. You know, there's a, there's a Buddhist story that, um, that troubles me a little bit. I've, I've decided I'm writing a new end to that story. Um, I want to tell you about the meaning of the word midrash. Midrash means um, a story that you make up about a, a scripture story where you have certain bare-bones facts from the scripture story and other things that aren't said. But if you make up a story using those bare bones and you add in background story, who's to say that that wasn't part of the background? It's your midrash. It's what you filled in. Could be true, could be not true, but uh, it's a great tradition in religious thinking to write midrash on something, just put in extra stuff. So there's a story about the Buddha uh, where a woman comes to uh, see him with her child who's just died. It's kind of like maybe the parents of that child in uh, Windsor who died last week. If there had been a Buddha in Windsor who was known to have uh, extraordinary magical powers and could heal, surely they would have gone. In the Buddha story, a woman comes with a child who's just died and says, uh, I know that you're an extraordinary person with great powers. Please restore my child to life. And the Buddha in the story says, I will do it. Uh, bring me a mustard seed. Um, for me to do that, I need you to bring me a mustard seed from a house in which no one has ever died. And so the woman rushes off. And of course, you can tell will go to every house, and there is no house where no one has ever died, because there is no house. I mean, pre presumably if you were going to be a literalist, and you could say, I built this house yesterday, no one ever died in it, here's a mustard seed. But, but in the largest sense, you can see that the metaphor is there is no house in the world in which someone hasn't died, because everything dies. We are sitting here on probably many graves of, of the generations of uh, Miwok who lived here. So she comes back after some time and says, uh, I couldn't find any. But clearly in the saying, has understood that death is what happens to everyone. And in the story, she bows to the Buddha in gratitude for his teaching that uh, there is no alternative to dying. And uh, she accepts her pain with surrender. She surrenders to her pain. And bows to the Buddha, which I understood to mean she thanks him for that lesson. I, my midrash is that she and the Buddha then sit there for a while and cry together. You know, I, I want it to be not just that she gets it and is able to accept it, but that she cries. And I'd like him to cry too. You know, that I think there's no, in, in my experience, there's, um, no level of wisdom that obviates sadness. That you could know things happen like this. It couldn't be otherwise. This is the karma of the situation. Even if it wasn't the karma of this, you know, it, it's always the karma of the situation. Just the situation is the result of whatever happened before. It's always the karma of the situation. You say, well, the situation could have been otherwise. We say, well, in the largest sense, everything that's born dies. But in truth, in that particular story with the Buddha and the young woman, and the young woman with her child, she recognizes that everything, everything that's dear to us dies. But not every child of a parent dies. Sometimes the parents die before the children. Dying is ordinary. Dying before your parents do is not so ordinary. Lots of people don't. Lots of people die in the in a in a progression. I, I am, at this point, the oldest person in my family. My husband's a little older than, than I am, but in our lineage of people and in our sibling families, we're the oldest with no parents. So I am the oldest on the top of that certain tree. And I very, very much hope to exit before anybody else in that order. I really do. I mean, I don't want to have to do anybody else. Before me, I don't get any choice about that, but that'll be that'll be the preferred exit order, you know. Um, it's a preferred exit order. 
I mean, exiting is always, I think it'll always be sad, you know. Um, when I read Terry Tempest Williams, the reason I wanted to read it to you is that her mother at the very end was quite content. Um, and everybody around was quite content. And she, they, they had enough morphine so that she was comfortable. I thought a lot, and this was the piece that really, that really moved me to want to talk about it today. And I'm really going to invite you to talk about it with each other and with me as well. Because there's a preferred exit order, and there's a preferred exit way. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's just finished a chaplaincy program. And he was telling about um, uh, one of the challenges that he, that he, in, uh, that he found the program so gratifying and, and um, challenging. He said the first time he was doing hospital cha- chaplaincy, he said you come into a room, really um, you don't know the people at all. All you know is that someone in that room is dying and you go in to somehow be with what's going on. And uh, he said, you know, the first time he did that, he didn't know exactly how to come in and what to do. He said, but all of a sudden it became quite clear that there's nothing to do. You just come in, you see the situation, you make your heart available. He said, everybody was around this person. person was surrounded by love. He said, I could come in, I could hold the hand of the person and just be there, hold a hand, pat the hand a little bit. There's not very much to say except I'm here and I see your family is here with you. That's all. And he said, you know, it not only didn't, wasn't frightening to me, he said, it um, wasn't frightening to me. To, I didn't have to think about what I should say. I wasn't afraid about that. I knew that there was nothing to say except to be there with my heart open. And he said, the other thing is, is uh, I had worried a little bit that it would be terrible. And he said, it wasn't terrible at all, that somehow it was fine. It was fine because here's a regular thing, a person is dying, but surrounded by people who love her. And there's something he said, as a matter of fact, I was surprised to find it's quite beautiful, that uh, not unlike a birth, I've actually thought that myself, you know, because I've been in both places, in rooms waiting for someone to pass and in rooms waiting for someone to emerge. And the feeling isn't that much different, you know? You're waiting for some momentous shift in consciousness to happen. Um, One is quieter than the other, you know, Uh, in my experience. You know, it's quieter than the other. But, you know, you kind of breathe, you're watching the breath, you hear you watching the breath, uh, just to see that it, when it doesn't happen again. And then everybody watches breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out, and then it doesn't happen anymore. It's just like the breath went in and out of that person a zillion times, and then it doesn't anymore. And in a, in a room where it's all quiet and surrounded by love, it's just finished, it's okay. Um... Everybody knows it was going to happen. There's a certain amount of relief. And there's something quite lovely about the sense of love that that's held in. It's not... Well, the sense... Well, how many people here have ever been in a room as a baby emerged? Human baby emerged. A lot of people. It's amazing, isn't it? You also breathe. You breathe with the person. Breathe. Push. You push with the person. You hold your breath. Push. You know, <laughs> you can't push it out of them, but you push. And then all of a sudden it's out. Um, and there's a new consciousness in the room. But I thought about those two normal ends of the beginning and the end. And in those cases, they're all also surrounded by love. People say, go, go. And in that point, and in both times, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's true for me. You tell me this. There, the world disappears. There is no world outside of that room and that event. This is the only thing. It takes up the entire consciousness. You're not thinking about what will I cook next Thanksgiving for dinner. or It just takes up the whole consciousness. So I was thinking about the kinds of ways in which death doesn't end 
death doesn't happen quietly and in a way that's beautiful. And so I thought about the, the Windsor child that drowned, and that's an accident, it happens. And then I looked up that picnic lightning. I remembered it from Billy Collins. He talks about... Um, there are picnics with lightning that strikes, and uh, uh, I like that line about safes fall out of windows on pedestrians. They, you, everybody has seen a cartoon where someone is walking along. Actually, I had one on my refrigerator for years because it was a person of a, a person walking along, and uh, at, you know, in front of a building, which is a, obviously a high building. And what the person doesn't see is that a safe, one of those old safes has fallen out of a window and is about to hit on his head, fall on his head. And he's striding along jauntily and smiling. And what he's reading is clearly a report from his last doctor's appointment. Because he's smiling and it's saying cholesterol, 150, blood pressure, 90 over 60. And you know that he can have the best report in the world. It doesn't matter what his blood pressure is. It's soon going to be nothing. You know, when this... So here he is, and it, there's, there's no caption on it. He's just walking along, reading this report of his excellent health while the safe is falling. Like sometimes people talk about, um, you know, there's a plane crash sometime. People talk about a tragedy, and, you th- and I think to myself, it's a plane crash, and you know, not that it isn't upsetting and, and that, that I don't feel terrible about it, but I also wonder about the people on it, and I think about, the people who were on their way to get married, or the people who were on their way home from having had uh, a diagnosis of some terrible disease that they were going to get sicker and sicker from, that now they are relieved of the last six months of agonizing degeneration. And you know, everybody's in a different place. That that uh, that if I think about it, the fact that people die is not necessarily a tragedy for everybody who's dying um, or for all their families. There's a line from Rumi. I think it's Rumi. Or Kabir, I'm not sure. It sounds more like Rumi. Death comes as an enemy only to those who have forgotten to welcome it as a friend. Um, Death comes as an enemy only to those who have forgotten to welcome it as a friend. So it's a scary thing to think about because what if I heard tomorrow? You know, somebody here might have some grievous illness. One of my very closest friends is having chemotherapy for a grievous illness. She is very hopeful that she won't die quite soon. So am I. I'm thinking about it a lot these days. What I'm mostly thinking about is that the only place that there's some part, place of negotiation seems to be the kind, in willfully ending lives. You know, we take good care of everyone that we can. The Windsor accidents happen, picnics and lightnings. But wars people make purposely kill each other. And that's what I think about as being so odd, so strange, I thought I'd read uh, I'd read some poetry to you from uh, uh, Nicholas Kristof, who's a columnist for the New York Times, who had a. Uh, who, did you see these poems? Um, they're hard to listen to. He, uh, he uh, made a call some weeks ago. He put out a call in the paper to, for people to write poems uh, in response to the war in Iraq. And all in the last three columns, he's had uh, the ones that he picked as being the ones that he chose as being the best. <laughs> These are some of the best. This is a poem uh, written by Alexander Nemzer of New Haven writing about the death of a pilot. His mother sent him pictures of his truck, a pickup, hubcaps polished every time he stopped to fill the tank, as clear as mirrors. 
a dog, the dog who'd lost an eye last spring, his town, Apollo, Pennsylvania, near the falls on Roaring Run. The watch his uncle won from playing cards. His empty chair at dinner, audacious as a space left by a tooth. We traded rifles, scripted final letters, and promised their delivery home. At night, we planned escapes to Istanbul to join the dervishes. Eleven miles from Baghdad, I stood dumb as a cow and watched two choppers collide like fists and spin across the sky. It's impossible for me to think about purposely setting up a world in which people do that. He starts this article by saying, Generals and presidents approach war as a vast struggle, but war as it's most achingly real happens not to armies, but to individuals. Jim Brown, a former U.S. Marine now in Sydney, Australia, wrote from a soldier's point of view. This is the poem. It's only a short dash from this dusty wall to that one, but you try it when someone you can't see is sending hot, cracking thunderbolts your way and you're clutching your young wife's sweat-faded photos so tight your legs don't work properly. Or try to tell the good Iraqis from the bad ones. Make a mistake, the good ones become bad ones and you make the evening news. The answer is to get from this dusty wall to that one and get home. Frank Sandoval of Louisville, Colorado, thought of children. A young girl in a pretty dress, her first kiss, her dried lips pressed into the dirt of a road. She's now a horrid little carcass. Flies, tears dried to gelatin in her eyes, hair dirtier than a woman's hair should ever be. She's free. I look at my little girl, blue eyes, prettier than a flower, laughter more joyous than a bird song. My heart swells in my chest, and while I laugh, I feel fear, smell a faint set stench of insanity. So I'll stop there for a while. First of all, they're heavy. They are heavy. But it's insanity. It's insanity to be killing people. I think about the fact that Someone once said, we should take the whole world and put them into retreat. <laughs> everybody, Actually, if everybody went on retreat, think about it. A, it's not going to happen, right? This is a great fantasy. But suppose everybody were on retreat for a week um, in rooms with everybody who didn't look like them, everybody who spoke a different language and with different colors and shapes and wore different kinds of clothings. And didn't have any of their friends with them, just all these folks. And there was enough food to eat. And they just sat together for a week and sat there and ate meals and went for walks together and then sat there and ate meals and went for walks together and lay down and slept in the same room and then got up and sat there and had meals and took walks together. How could people do anything like that to each other? And what will happen? What will happen to stop people from acting out of places of feeling angry? What do you think? Do you suppose that people are so, that that the, the urge to violence is so enormous? Are you, are you despairing? Are you hopeful? I was um, I was at a piano concert last Sunday, last Saturday night, at the uh, Congregational Church in Nevada. Is that what it was? Yeah, I guess so. Congregational Church in San Rafael. It's a lovely little church, and uh, uh, so fifteen children play and sing, and. Uh, it's, I, I really love to to see that kind of young people doing doing end of the year recital with all varying degrees of skill, and uh, it's somehow cuter to me than if they were polished and adult musicians and they sat down and did some virtuoso performance, which would be wonderful. Uh, there's a there's something very sweet 
about each of these children who's all braided and dressed and goes up and puts out their music and sits down and thumps it out and their parents are right there sitting and looking at them and um of course we had our own person there so you're waiting to see if your person's going to do good because all the people there have a vested interest in one or another child nobody came there who, just because they wanted to go to that piano concert and uh, but you see all of this input of of um uh, intention into this crop of 15 or 20 people um and i don't know that any of them is ever going to be a musician but every one of them is going to know that their parents cared enough to want to teach them something, something of beauty and something wonderful. And their piano teacher was feeling good about it. And I was feeling really good about it. I was thinking, look how people are. They take such sweet care of each other. And at some point in the program, I went to the ladies' room. And since it's a church, it has notices on the inside doors of the ladies' rooms. And the notices are about domestic violence, because that's what churches put up in the in, in ladies' rooms to, to let people know if you are in trouble. These are the places that you can go. With statistics about how frequently women are mistreated and 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 treated harshly, and children. So it's not just other people in other cultures. It's a kind of a rampant um, not mentioning of violence that goes on at, at war in foreign places and here in the midst of us. It seems like only other people do it, but so many other people do it. I think we're, we're quite a rarefied group here. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I wanted to, something that you had said earlier just kind of sparked me. Um, uh, I've been married to my husband for four years. We're coming up on our anniversary. And we were having a discussion the other night before we went to sleep, and he said to me, looking at the world, he was talking about the conference where everybody was protesting about the GMOs and all that kind of stuff. He said, you know, humanity is so destructive, because he reads the paper every day, but he reads it from the perspective of we're going to hell, not, not the other direction. And um, he said to me, he goes, you know, we're like a Mack truck headed for destruction. Mm. What if we just got behind the wheel and went for it, just got totally destructive with everything? Mm. And, you know, Mother Earth has a way of, you know, changing everything. The dinosaurs are gone. We had a nice age. And now, look, there's human beings. What will be next? Mm-hmm. What he said, and with every moral ember of my being, I looked at him like, "How can you possibly think that way? Mm-hmm. Like, how am I married to you?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, why? <laughs> so then, you know, my husband is the most dear man because when he's with human beings. He makes them feel so cared for and so wonderful. But I know somewhere in the recesses of his mind, he's thinking about this, and he's going, you know, why don't we just go for it? Let's just destroy everything, because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, baby, you know, you, what you had said last week really brought me to this point. You said, you have to back away from the picture and look at all the beautiful things that are around you. And you have to savor those things and treasure those things and protect those things. Because even though it is part of our human nature to be destructive, it is also our part of human nature to be good and to love each other. And the way he is with his mother, the way he is with our dog, the way he is with me, I've never met a man that treats me as good as he does. Mm -hmm. And to know (coughs) that this is a part of who he is, it frightened me. And at the same time, I had to understand that with all the goodness, there is that, that, that darkness, too. Mm. And I told him, I said, you know, I hope that you don't entertain this idea for too long mm. because I think that it would, it would, it would mm. give the stench of insanity to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be a bad thing. Mm. And, you know, he agreed, but he also, you know, he, he does see that everything that, that is good does pass away. Mm-hmm. And he's seeing so much of it lately that I think he is coming to that place of hopelessness mm-hmm. that he doesn't see where he can um, where he can grow mm-hmm. and my my take on it is 
I think that you have to go into the dark to see, to find the light. That you know, after World War II, we saw huge darkness, mm-hmm. the darkest darkness I think humanity has ever seen in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, and we came into a great point of light where mm-hmm. you know we did treat each other with dignity and and whatnot. And I wonder if we're going back into that darkness so that we can come into a place mm-hmm. of light again. Mm-hmm. So. Oh man, I hope we do. I hope we do. Abigail was going to say something, and then and then I come over to Evan. Yeah, Aaron. Um, this is a sort of a version of what you said, only more individual. And Could it, you and speak it, up, please? Yeah. Thank you so much. Let me stand up. Yeah, stand up. Oh God, again. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I wanted to say is a more individual version of what she just said, and it started with David mentioning his friend, and I wanted to mention and for us to hold my friend, um, Gloria Anzaldua, who was one of my best friends. We actually um, thought of books together, and, and she followed up on a suggestion we both had one night of writing um, this bridge called My Back, which has changed, um, has changed our society for um, women of color and for deviance and for all of us. The next book that she wrote, La Frontera, um, was chosen as one of the hundred best books of the century. Um, she was she was my best friend. She was one of my very best friends. She came and lived with me for long periods of time. She took my daughter when she was a baby to the ocean for the first time. Um, and then we drifted apart partially because I acted unskillfully. I had her come to my house when she had a hysterectomy to take care of her. And then I left and went to the mountains with my friend and let my lover, Jane, at the time, take care of her. I'm not sure that she ever forgave me or that we just drifted apart. Um, She died. She died a couple of weeks ago. She died of diabetes um, by herself in Santa Cruz. Friends found her the next day. I went to her memorial in Santa Cruz where I used to teach. She was given her PhD that she was working on posthumously by the university. Um, And so much went through me, so many tears. I took my daughter, regrets, sadness, but much more peaceful than, you know, helicopters colliding in the sky, but nonetheless death. The last couple of days, I've been alone. My daughter is on a young women's spirituality camping trip. And as many of you know, I've been terrified about her leaving for college in the fall. And in these last couple of days of being alone, I've really, I've really had a peaceful, wonderful, um, in-the-moment time. You know, the mess that I cleaned up after she left didn't regenerate. It's still clean. <laughs> it's amazing. There aren't any more dirty dishes in the sink. But but during that time, um, at Gloria's memorial, I got up and said something, and I was asked to write that in the book. And I said, I can't possibly. It's too big. It's too much. But during that time, I felt Gloria. I felt her spirit come into me. I felt her her love of aloneness. I felt. Her solitariness, she was a pretty solitary person. She never actually had a partner. She was politically, you know, queer, um, bi, whatever other people weren't. She politically loved to embrace. Um, But she really spent more and more the end of her life in her writing, in in her being. And I, I felt her so vividly, as if she was back, not as if she was back. And I got out La Frontera and I read her inscription to me which said in Spanish one of to one of my dearest friends, write. Don't forget to write, Abigail. When will you get over taking care of people, having relationships, running around, washing the dishes, feeding the animals? You know, do do it. And so um, last night I started writing, and I really had that sense when I was finished of, of the cycles. Abaya reminded me this morning of Jack always saying, 
um, that the heart is like a pinata. When you break it apart, all yeah. kinds of little gifts and presents open up. <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, exactly how we travel from this, from the individual, from Gloria, who changed life for women and women of color and people in this country forever. And you changed my life as I changed hers. How you get from that to the larger picture of what's going on in Iraq. But I do know that on one level there isn't a larger picture. Mm. It's just one being which which isn't even a self, which mm. is really connected to all of it. So Driving up here, I was listening to the congressional report on exactly what they found out about the terrorists day by day, week by week, up to September 11th. It was awful. I could hardly drive. And when I got to my favorite little sign that says, yield to the president at the bridge, and I did my meditation, you know, and I turned off the radio and I stopped. And I was so grateful <laughs> to yield to the president. And again, there was that sense of Gloria saying, mi amiga, it's like I hand open. Aaron. When uh, I become overwhelmed by uh, humanity's inhumanity, I try and take a larger look at the bigger picture uh, and take some comfort in what my grandmother used to say, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It always has been going to hell in a handbasket, more or less. And I suggest that a lot of the despair that um, affects so many of us comes from the shock of 9-11, comes from the uh, war in Iraq, after a period of relative peace, at least in our consciousness. So when you take into consideration history and things like the Inquisition, like the Crusades, where this was the way people treated each other, uh, and now <coughs> there seems to be more awareness that this is not the way people should, should treat each other that this is, I have a firm belief that uh, humanity is becoming more aware uh, of the, that it is our, in our own best self-interest to treat each other with kindness. Or as Sylvia has said, if I can paraphrase, that if we are but truly mindful, we cannot help but to act impeccably. And secondly, as a former member of the Fourth Estate, the media, I know that no news, rather, I know that good news is no news. And when I was in that TV newsroom, oh goody, a triple fatal, I've got a lead story for uh, the news tonight. <coughs> so our, the, the ease with which we are uh, inundated with all the terrible things that happen, because that must be what we want to hear, or else there would be newspapers and magazines and um, radio stations that concentrate in nothing but good news and nothing but stories of how humanity has survived and how humanity is of uh, of. Uh, basically uh, capable of treating each other with, with kindness. So these are the two things that I use to keep uh, grounded, to keep uh, stable, and to remember that this too shall pass. So what I, I think what we're all saying in one way or another, let me see if I can put it together in some kind of a way. I. Um, putting together a little bit of the, this is how it always has been and 
I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, a very serious Dharma student yesterday, about what actually is the Buddha's view about incarnation. Because if you read, um, if you read traditional Buddhist texts, uh, the Buddha says, I won't be reborn again. I've seen through the, um, I have seen through the speciousness of the sense of separate self. I won't get trapped into attachment to ego and attachment to life itself. And then there's always a question of what does that actually mean? Does it mean that life itself will stop? Um, I find myself more in a place, uh, of course this is another culture and we're uh, two and a half millennia later, not thinking about uh, life itself stopping. I think... uh, um, well, you said it, you know, the, the, the world has been destroyed before and it regenerates itself. Not interested in life itself stopping. Um, I think to myself as being reborn into rounds of suffering. Every time I get caught in the um, ego perspective that I am suffering about something, if I could uh, look at this world and not get caught in the I am suffering by it, but respond to it out of compassion. Maybe that's not reborn. Maybe that, maybe that changes the whole understanding of what it means reborn into suffering. Maybe it's not about not being in a life. Maybe it's about being in a life and responding with suffering. I talked to somebody earlier this morning and the 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 question that came up for us it's if someone frightens us uh something goes on uh you're going along you feel relaxed you feel happy you're not your mind is not trapped with something your mind is resting and then something happens and it frightens you and the mind right away makes um a self-protective statement. Uh-oh, how am I going to take care of myself? And at that moment, the mind is reborn into a certain amount of suffering. You know, How am I going to take care of myself? What should I do? I'll have to talk to so-and-so, and I'll fix so-and-so, and I'll get back at so-and-so, and how can they done that to me? So the mind finds itself in a, a, a challenged, and it becomes in one of its less loving moods. It's really in a mood of self-protecting. So we say, well, that's just a story. You know, when something happens, you could say, well, I don't know what's going to happen from this, if it's going to be good or bad. If you could keep your mind balanced, if you didn't get frightened by it, maybe you just keep on and just be in your very sweet, good nature that you were in before. And say, well, but is that true? So don't tell a story because you don't know what it is. Then the other question is, well, what about what makes your heart really move in a way that uh, responds with goodness. Don't you need a story for that too? Um, this person was telling me about someone who invited them over to their house to show them um, a new statue of uh, someone in a group together with them. Said, "Why don't you stop by my house? I'll show you this new Kuan Yin that I have." And the person has quite a lovely house and quite a lovely collection of uh, uh, Kuan Yins and. I thought she was going to tell me in the rest of the story when I came there, I had a certain amount of lust arise. Look, she's got all these great Kuan Yins. And I was thinking that that's where she was going. And she said, you know, I got there and my mind was completely relaxed. I loved her house. It was full of great art, wonderful Kuan Yins. And amazingly, lust did not arise in me. I just rejoiced in the fact that she had all these great Kuan Yins, beautiful art. And she said, and I said to her, uh, would you like for me to sing you the method chant? Uh, in Pali. She said, I happen to know that. And the other person said, yeah, that'd be lovely. So she said, I, said to, I sang it to her. She said, I felt really good. So then we were trying to do the dynamics of how did that work? And I said, well, probably, first of all, your mind didn't get cramped up in any way. Your mind remained in its uh, relaxed state. In that relaxed state, you were able to recognize that she'd given you a gift. She said, come to my house. And see this art. You know, that didn't invite you over to become lustful or to say, yeah, yeah, I have art. You know? <laughs> invited you over to share the art. She gave you a gift. And your mind, because it was relaxed, gave her a gift back. And I said, you know, I think that's the way minds act. 
said, you think it's a story? I said, well, maybe it's not a story. Maybe it's just a fact. Someone gives you a gift, you give them a gift back. That if your mind stays relaxed, that maybe what we're actually trying to do is keep the mind in that balanced place where it sees just what's happening and responds in just the way that that situation calls for. I think there are three ways that situations, the three responses in situations, I'm, I'm really more or less depending on this, that I, if, uh, I think, when my, my experience is that when I'm not confused and I'm not overwhelmed, that, and I think this is true for all of us, that my basic nature is friendliness. It's, it's metta, you wish well for people. You get on a plane, you're walking down a plane, you don't know those folks, but you feel good to them, don't you? I mean, like, and maybe it's self-serving, I'm hoping that they get their good because I'd like to get their good, you know? <laughs> you know but they're people who are hopeful enough to get on a plane. You know, and I have a magical formula. If I get on a plane and there's a wee baby on the plane, I think to myself, well, this plane has got to get there okay. Because I'm sure that we babies hold the plane up. Uh, that, you know, it's completely nonsense. Planes fall down with we babies on them, but you know, not in my mind they don't. You know, that there's something that uh, that protects the planes, and I even know as I'm thinking it that that's nonsense. But you know, that uh, maybe it's something about the what I imagine to be the goodness of young babies. But anyway, I think the mind is when it's the mind and the heart when it's not frazzled up, uh, it's not co-opted. I really took it seriously what you said, Aaron, about the media, about the way that we get frightened or carried away, like your husband reading the newspaper. It's, it's easy to frighten the mind and stir it up. and um, So it responds, I think, by being friendly or being uh, compassionate. You know, you meet something and it's struggling. You really feel for it. Um, Without, uh, just like that, you really honestly feel for it. The the uh, the scripture says the heart quivers in response. Um, compassion means you feel along with that person, and you can't know actually what the other person is feeling. So uh, I'm actually quite reluctant ever to say to a person, even if they tell me their experience and it sounds just like something I had, I wouldn't really want to say, "Oh, I know just how you feel." Because I don't know how just how the other person feels. I know how I feel in response to what's going on with them, but how do I know what they feel? But I, but I, I know how I feel. So there's a new book that's very good, by the way, which I just saw called "The Etiquette of uh, Illness," about how to visit somebody, or how to call somebody, or how to relate to somebody. Uh, it's amazing that we don't know this who has some devastating or potentially devastating illness, written by a woman I know who has a devastating illness, been living with it for 10 years. It's in remission and it's out. It's in remission and it's out. She says, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world. People say, I don't, I'd like to call so-and-so, but I'm afraid to call her because I don't know what to say. And you say, well, what you say is, hello, I heard you're sick. I'm so sorry. That's enough. What else do you, you know, that, that's enough to say. And it's really helpful to the other person. And you are so sorry, you know. That's, that's the best thing to say. And the other thing that uh, I think came up with the story of this person who said, come and see my Kuan Yin, is uh, when the heart's quiet, we appreciate other people, their generosity, their goodness, their kindness. We appreciate art. And we appreciate um, uh, creativity. Like, uh, I think that the delight that she felt, my friend, when she went and saw all these Kuan Yin's, it's the same delight as you go to the church and you see all these little children banging out when the saints go marching in, you know, <laughs> so seriously, you know, and their parents all filming it so seriously. It's lovely, to that, that sort of input. Misha, what were you thinking? Uh, can you make an announcement that ties up with the talk, actually? Yes, yes. Um, I'm a volunteer at Zen Hospice, and um, we are trained to go to two different places. And one of the places is the guest house, which is a nice Victorian house. And it has to close at the end of the month because we cannot get insured anymore uh, because of violations of codes. 
And the reason why I want to, <laughs> to talk about it for a minute here is because we have three residents right now who are in the house. And when we, they come in, we make a promise that we are taking care of them until they die. Mm -hmm. And now uh, the insurance didn't want to hear about waiting until they die. So mm -hmm. we have to close. And we feel a responsibility to, as a group, um, uh, as a community, to take care of them until they're dead, until they die. So what we're trying to do is find a place for each individual, individually or together, where we could, as a group, go on carrying them through until yeah. they until they die. So I thought I would say that to the community here in case you would know somebody who has such a place or has a house with an extra room. And I think it's, it would be, it's a great honor and blessing to be able to do that. Mm. So I'm just putting it out. If you have a thought, you can call me or send me an email and I'll put you in touch with whoever. Huh. I think that, were you going to talk about what Mijo said? Did you have something to say on what Mijo no, said? I just know that she put it out there. And I, what I've been wanting to say is that I thought the question before every, we started was how did we, what was our feelings about or our responses to the poems and everything. Mm -hmm. um, I keep going back to King. Gandhi and Thich Han way of thinking is that we don't realize in our country that we have the power of democracy to know it's threatened. We don't realize, like the woman who just put that out in a group, mm. all of us are thinking about it. Mm. And, and when she gives us sort of an appointedness or a place to put it, Mm -hmm. um, some good things can come forward. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I just have been wanting to say, I think the, the reason that King and Gandhi and um, Thich Nhat Hanh are so revered, or revered, however you pronounce it, is the fact that they actually were in such misery. Mm -hmm. That they, had, they couldn't divorce themselves. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I understand because I'm, you know, me enough. I'm pretty emotional, and I, I suffer a lot because I feel so deeply. Mm -hmm. But I think if we can separate ourselves, in a way, it's a bit dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, where I'm at is dangerous too. But mm -hmm. I think we forget that we can write to the paper. Mm -hmm. You know, and we can call the news, and we can ask for Noam Chomsky to counsel the generals, and we, <laughs> yes. so much of us are not thinking of what we can do, mm -hmm. and I hear her say that, and mm -hmm. I'm so proud of her, mm -hmm. because she's spearheading what we can do. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think that um, that's a nice, that's a good place to leave today about, because we started with the sense of hope. And I think that in some sense, the sense of powerlessness is the thing that most, um, most fatigues the mind. And come back to the sense that when we sat in the beginning, and we said, if the mind can rest for a minute, it can say, I can do something else. I can call somebody. I can do something one of my, my, I, I know that we have to leave and I have to go, but uh, I, I used to frequently tell a story of a neighbor of mine who's died 30 years ago, who uh, was calling people, he died next door in his bedroom, and phoning people uh, in the few minutes he had every day between when the morphine, when he woke up and when he needed to take more morphine. To tell people, I have a, he's have to call my cousin in Los Angeles. He's having marriage troubles. I can help him out. I have to call uh, my uh, my nephew in Atlanta. He opened a business, and he's having a little trouble. But I have some idea about how he could fix it. 
that there's something about engaging yourself that keeps you alive for your whole life. And really what I guess I was, uh, I was a little bit um, um, inspired to talk about this today because I really want to talk about engagement. And uh, in the spirit of uh, Gandhi and King, I want to talk about being peaceful without being a pacifist. Peaceful without being passive. I want, to, I want to end war, but I don't want to be passive. I want to be peaceful in such a way that it makes a huge difference in the world. I don't want to fight against injustice. I want to teach against it. And I want to stand firm against it. I have this tremendous um, fantasy myself, and I think it's starting actually to happen, that suddenly masses of people uh, will get on TV and say, you know, uh, I was part of this lie or I was part of this cover-up. Because I think it's starting to happen. And... uh, All of that, all of that. Can you bear one more poem? This is the winning poem. Winning poem. It's really a oh. It is a oh. It is a oh. It's a very good poem, though. But um, a tiny piece of metal hangs upon a frame that has father written in the name. Tiny piece of metal hangs in glory there, never left to tarnish by neglecting care. The tiny piece of metal brings fame to the home, glory for its man across the ocean's foam. Politicians send praises into the peaceful air. Others smile now who once would only stare. People from all around come, and especially to see the tiny piece of metal, symbol of the free, a country's great, grateful token to the bravest of its land. Proud of their famous town, the village people say, do you know what this means? With pride, most every day, to the little boy whose father went to war, yes, softly he replies, I have no daddy anymore. So, um, at some point, I have this feeling, and it's more hopeful than it used to be, that at some point, a critical number of people will say, we can't do this. We have to stop. Um, Someone sent me an email and said, start wearing red on Friday. Did you get that email? How many people got the red on Friday email? I didn't know whether to yet send it on. You know, I've been wearing black and going to walk with the women in black. Now I'm going to wear red. How many people? But you didn't see it? Wear red on Friday. Some article of red, a red hat, a red scarf, a red something, so that people will know that you are the people wearing red on Saturday to say, I am one of the people who are protesting. Friday. Friday. Wear red on Friday. So I am one of the people who, when you say, nobody thinks like me, I am one of the people who does think like you and thinks that we can stop doing this. So all you have to do, wear red on Friday from now until the election. It's like we wear a little pink ribbon or a little this ribbon or a little that ribbon. It's from World War II. Is it? Women wore red, um, I think it was in, I want to say Norwegia or something. Oh, that was what it was. That. The, the, the German the occupation to show when the Germans were in that they were in solidarity against the Germans. And so all the women started to spread. Okay. All right. Well, we could do it. I'd love to get that in I'll send it to Sherry, who will send it to you. <laughs> Sherry is our scribe, by the way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.